This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You literally don't get it. Other countries are watching you and they're saying, look at how they behave. This is only going to get worse. And it erodes confidence in the U.S. economy and in the U.S. currency. And that has ramifications. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is the highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, my dear friend Susan Del Percio. Welcome back. How are you? It's great to be here. Oh, work in we're in studio. New York. And we're having fun. Oh my God. The weather is so beautiful today. Yep. I had a lovely walk down to the studio. I had a great walk. Did you. And joining us, returning to the roundup, also is Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N. and at the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. She was also a senior policy sanctions advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun, an easy way, and she occasionally moonlights over at MSNBC with Susan Hagar. Thank you for being here. Thank you Welcome for having me. We're in person. I know. It's a miracle I made it on time. Oh, man. Beautiful day. We haven't done an all-in-person roundup in a minute. I can't remember the last time we were all in person, and this, like, the chemistry is just so much better. But can so I just say, when you introduce Hagar, I'm yeah. always like, oh my God, she knows so much more than I do. <laughs> that is not like the amount of things she knows. It's like, I, 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 I don't know what I'm going to have to offer. Up first this week... We're going to discuss the 11th hour deal to raise the debt ceiling and reduce spending. Then we'll take a wider view at how getting this close to default impacts the global economy and foreign affairs. Hagar. Next, we'll discuss Dianne Feinstein's return to the Senate, her reliance on aides for knowing how and when to vote, and calls for her resignation from the left. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to dive into the politics of delusion and how our misconceptions about what other people think could fuel an anti-democracy spiral. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus. 
or just click the link at the top of today's show notes and we'll dive in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, ladies, let's make a roundup. Over the weekend, President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy reached a deal to raise the debt limit. The White House is pushing for a speedy passage of the bill as we near the Monday deadline to address the debt ceiling or default on the debt. We're recording today on Thursday morning. The House passed the bill on Wednesday night, and now it's headed to the Senate where they'll need to vote it through in time for Biden to sign the bill ahead of the Monday deadline in order to avoid a default. In terms of what's actually agreed to in the deal, it suspends the $31.4 trillion borrowing limit also known as the debt ceiling, until January 1st, 2025. So the Treasury Department can borrow essentially as much money as it wants to, it needs to, to pay the bills until after the 2024 election cycle. So this isn't a, an increase in the debt ceiling as much as it is a suspension of the debt ceiling until then. It cuts non-defense discretionary spending for the 2024 fiscal year, and it limits discretionary spending to 1% growth in 2025. So it's effectively a cut since inflation's very likely to be much higher than 1%, as we all know. Although Republicans initially called for 10 years of spending caps, this legislation includes two years of caps and then switches to spending targets, I'm putting that in air quotes, that are completely unenforced. The White House is estimating it'll yield about a trillion dollars in savings. The New York Times analysis has it uh, closer to $860 billion. The bill rescinds $1.4 billion out of the $80 billion increase in funding for the IRS the Democrats passed last year. Uh, it imposes new work requirements for food stamps on adults ages 50 to 54 who don't have children living in their home. Currently, those work requirements only apply to people ages 18 to 49. This is a big part of the bill. So because of the negotiation, veterans, the homeless, and people who were uh, children in foster care are exempted from the work requirements. And the White House is saying that roughly the same number of people will be receiving benefits as before because of these, these carve-outs. So uh, the CBO is estimating that we'll spend $2.1 billion more in food aid over the next decade as a result of the change. There are some new measures to get energy projects moving more quickly, uh, including approving permitting for a natural gas project in West Virginia that Joe Manchin has been pulling for. And it officially ends the moratorium on student loan repayments by the end of August. Uh, Biden had previously said that the payment pause would expire 60 days after June 30th or whenever the Supreme Court decides on the case, which is roughly the same point in time. It does not, however, halt the Biden student, the Biden student loan debt forgiveness plan. That could be blocked by the Supreme Court. Still this term coming up in June, probably, but this legislation doesn't block it. Uh, let's see, what else? It also claws back $30 billion in unspent money from COVID relief bills. That seemed to me at the beginning of these negotiations as like the biggest no-brainer possible for them to agree on, and in fact it was. Some of that money will actually go to other non-discretionary spending, however. <laughs> So it's not exactly a savings. It is the U.S. government. It is the U.S. government. <laughs> uh, but it also, it also allocates $22 billion in the Department of Commerce's non-recurring expenses fund. Non-recurring expenses fund. So 
Some people are calling this a slush fund. There are kind of constraints on it, but really no uh, real uh, constraints. There's not a really a huge clawback in spending happening here. They're just really moving, moving, moving money around. Um, the bill does not include the steeper spending cuts and stricter work requirements that Republicans had initially pushed for. Uh, it also doesn't claw back the tax incentives for transitioning to lower emission energy sources. Uh, it also didn't include any of the Biden proposals to increase taxes on corporations or high earners uh, or take steps to reduce Medicare spending on prescription drugs. So we're probably not going to default, so that's good. Uh, and as far as the spin goes, Kevin McCarthy told Shannon Bream on Fox on Sunday that, quote, there's not one thing in the bill for Democrats, end quote. He actually said that uh, Minority Leader uh, Hakeem Jeffries told him that there's nothing in the bill for Democrats. Jeffries said... He had no idea what McCarthy was talking about. But McCarthy has been claiming that he had a real victory in the negotiations. And now I put it to you. How are you evaluating who performed better in the negotiations? Susan. You know, just on that point about Democrats not getting anything, that was what they said on the Sunday shows right after they came up with a deal. But the language changed because they knew they McCarthy knew he needed Democrats to get this over the line in the vote. So they, you know, it was out there for about like 20 minutes. And then it was like, <laughs> let's switch because we've got to work together. And that's why actually both the Democrats and the Republicans in the House were upset with their leaders because they said, like, you really didn't get what you wanted. And yet you're giving credit. That we, we don't like this. Yeah. But they, they worked it through. And it's worth <laughs> noting that it did pass the House with more Democratic votes than Republican votes, even though the Republicans are in the majority. Yeah. Um, all right. So overall, what does this all mean? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't deem it a crisis because there was no countdown clock on any network. Oh, wow. <laughs> ha. Ha. You know, when we have the shutdown. That seems like a countdown. missed opportunity like for if ratings. You don't have, if you don't have a countdown clock, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not that taking that seriously. Um, while what didn't happen that we did not default is very important and very significant, the whole thing like your audience is very sophisticated when you were reading what was in, yeah. what was out. Most people, yeah, they don't even know what happened because nothing bad happened. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like one of those meteors coming for the earth and then it realizes it breaks up before it hits. Like everyone's like, oh, it's coming. And then it's like, ah, not so much. Yeah. So I, I think on the messaging, it was more about internal politics. And especially for McCarthy, there was a lot of talk about him potentially coming up for uh, a new vote for his speakership. Yep. After all this, yep. it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Mm. And um, while I have many, many issues, as you know, with my Republican mm. Party, mm. I will say this was a really significant win for McCarthy because yeah. of internal politics. He was able to get something done, hold the conference together enough, get the votes done, and also look like a grown-up in the room and not just, you know, kowtowing to the craziness of the party. Mm. He was a grown-up negotiating. The other thing I'll take away is one thing that people say that made this happen was Chuck Schumer wasn't in the room. <laughs> 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 and you just kind of have to love that. Um, Why do you think that was? Because he couldn't not talk about it. Oh. He so does love a camera. He does love a camera. And his rhetoric probably, he was also in a difficult place too because his whole conference isn't on board. Yeah. Um, Mitch McConnell's in the Senate, his Republican caucus isn't completely on board, but he's behind it, which means there should be enough votes. So yeah. when we look forward, what's going to happen? 
It goes to the Senate. When is it going to get passed in the Senate? Well, it depends how some people are feeling if they want to get out of town for the weekend. Yeah, maybe today. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, it, it pro- they're hoping for Friday because there's enough time on the clock. They have to go through everything. Uh, yeah. But there's a few Republicans who want to start adding amendments and do things mm. to hold it up, which they can do. And we still won't default unless they convince everyone not yeah. to vote for it. You need 60. Yeah. They're going to get to 60. Yeah. You're going to have Democrats— uh, say no, you're going to have some Republicans say no, but you're going to have 60 to get it done. It's just a matter of who wants to showboat on the Republican side. Yeah, I think that's, that's what we're looking I, at. I think that's right. And yet when we come back next week, what else you got? Yeah, <laughs> it, what's it's next? Over. It's right. over. Yeah, as Jeb Bartlett would say. Next? Yes. Right. Hagar, just on the domestic politics, we're going to get to the, the international mm-hmm. ramifications here uh, in our next segment. But on the domestic politics, how are you reading how the negotiations went down? Um, and... Uh, I will put this quote on the table, which I thought was beautiful from a from a, a columnist I read, uh, Brian Riedel, uh, in the Dispatch. He said, at the end of the day, Republicans took a hostage they knew they couldn't shoot. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I will say, I also, I expected the negotiations to be longer, to be more fraught, to have multiple rounds of voting, to have the so-called Freedom Caucus make more of a stink. I mean, they really they tried, right? But they they failed, which I loved. I, I thought that was a success because it shows that we can't all be taken hostage by this one small group of who I would call really extremists, not even conservative. Um, but I also, you know, the point that, Susan, that you made about Kevin McCarthy, I am struggling with because on one hand, I agree. It was a win for him. It went smoothly. He negotiated this. Then he was able to, to get it to the finish line without a lot of drama. And that is unique. But then I was starting to think to myself, what world do we live in? What are mm. our standards mm. that that is success? Now, the debt ceiling debate is always tense. And so I don't want to pretend and be naive that that things in Washington have always been hunky-dory except for the last, you know, several years. But he said this quote that part of me, that irked me a little bit. So he said, after it was over, he said, this is fabulous. This is one of the best nights I've ever been here. I thought it would be hard. I thought it'd be almost impossible just to get to 218. Now I found there's a whole new day here. We've woken them up. And part of me wants to be like, all right, dude, you need to slow your roll. We have trillions in debt. And this is a huge problem that is only going to get worse. And, and I, how are you going to handle that? How are you at all going to reach, right? Like this is on your plate. This is, this is in the now. And I feel like political officials keep kicking this can down the road. Oh yeah. I didn't mean to suggest that like, it's a win that he takes away. I mean, it's more or less a personal win that he still has a job. (laughs) Yes. And that he was, and it's interesting to see what Jeffrey, how Jeffries did it in the, in the house minority, because he was able to deliver those votes. And that's a very interesting, you know, that's Mm. something out of Nancy Pelosi's playbook. Like she used to Mm -hmm. say with Boehner, like, Mm -hmm. all right, how many votes do we really need to get it? And like, she would whip enough Democratic votes to get something done. The Hassard rule of, you know, you have to have the majority, the majority just doesn't work anymore. But I think like, for McCarthy, yeah, it's like his day in the sun, but there's also nothing else. Like, seriously, the debt ceiling's off the table for two years. They're going to do budget negotiations. They're never going to get, even though they say there are, a real budget deal. They're going to kick that down the road, too, until after 2024. And it will be crisis, and you are so right about, like, the problems we yeah. face haven't gone away at all. It was just, I guess I was speaking very much through a political. Totally. Sense. No, I think this is really important. We should we should sort of parse the politics from the substance here because serious people who are seriously concerned about the debt and the potential for a debt spiral and, you know, the 
rapidly increasing amount of money that we have to spend every year just to service the debt, meaning we're just paying interest payments, not actually spending the money on things that the government and the Americans uh, would benefit from. Uh, that's a problem that really wasn't addressed here because the, the politics are fantastic. This gives everybody something to crow about. However, they really substantively just kicked the can down the road actually to January of 2025 when mm -hmm. we're probably going to do this again. Um, some of the members, talking about the politics here for a minute, uh, but on the back of the substance, some of the members of the House Freedom Caucus have uh, expressed their anger at the bill and even threatened to oust McCarthy. Uh, this is the group of conservative members, about 45 of them, uh, and many of the Republicans who opposed McCarthy's bid for speaker. Uh, Texas Rep. Chip Roy said that he was going to fight the compromise bill and that there was, quote, going to be a reckoning no matter what happened with the vote. He also said there was a breach of the structure set up by House Republicans after their negotiation to elect McCarthy as speaker. So, Susan, you said you don't think this is going to happen. How concerned should McCarthy be about the potential for being ousted at this point? Or is it just a lot of hot air? Well, first, let me go back to Chip Roy. He's saying there's a day of reckoning for everything. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We, we were probably on the 32nd day. The rapture is coming. <laughs> but... I don't think McCarthy has to be that worried. I don't think there's the wherewithal to go through that process again because also, who are they going to get? Mm. And it could also be that they just like saying it. You know, I keep this whole debt ceiling negotiation. I kept coming back to that Margaret Thatcher quote. It used to be about doing something. Now it's about being someone. Yeah. And we have a lot of people who want to be someone. Yeah. And not do anything. Yeah. And that's what I think we're mostly seeing, what they can get in front of the camera. There's a, the, 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 that's a, there's a, a lot has been written, a lot of smart stuff has been written about the, the new and changing incentives of being in Congress. And that has absolutely nothing to do with legislating. No. It's, it's everything theater. To do with it's theater. Yeah. yeah. It's theater and reputation brand building so that you can go on and monetize it in other ways. Um, one last thing. On the left side of this bill, Hagar, uh, it's being attacked, um, especially the work requirements of the pipeline uh, approval for Joe Manchin's thing. Uh, Ro Khanna, Pramila Jayapal, AOC, predictably came out uh, against the bill in the House. Bernie Sanders announced on Wednesday that he's going to vote against the debt ceiling bill in the Senate. Uh, how are you thinking about the positioning on both the left, but I mean, on the right, but like also the left here, Biden's left flank? Well, so Joe, first, Joe Man, this was a huge win for Joe Manchin because he's <laughs> yeah. been fighting for this forever. Yeah. And I was trying to think about how it went in negotiations. Um, and that's because I'm preparing a satirical bit on that for uh, my show this week. Will you be wearing um, a wig? Um, I will. Two wigs, one for <laughs> Biden, one for McCarthy, um, and one for um, a third party to make faces about the, the ridiculousness. Is, is strong with this one. <laughs> I love my wigs. Um, I take an excuse to buy a new wig. And um, and so I was, you know, when I, I was thinking about that one in particular, and it's a win for Joe Manchin, but I was also thinking about Biden, this is something Biden gets. And even on his own campaign, right, when he had to face this question of whether fracking would be banned, mm -hmm. um, and he knew how how much this would sway voters in Pennsylvania specifically, he knew how to walk that line and how to say, like, listen— I am not proposing a ban. Yep. I know there are members of my party who want this. We're not ready for that yet. And so, you know, don't worry. We're not going to go down that route just yet. And we're going to work toward getting to a point where we can have cleaner energy and so on. And Yeah, but in his State of the Union, he was like, drill, baby, drill. Yeah, right. I mean, because, and, and there, listen, there are a lot after— after Russia sanctions yeah. and after seeing the, the surge in prices and seeing how that affected his own 
public support and polling and, and what that could do for, at that time, you know, the midterms and, and so on. He, he knows there are a lot of things he's, he's changed or pivoted, yeah. uh, maybe flip-flop, but pivoted on energy mm-hmm. because of this issue. His fist bump with Saudi Arabia, with Ooh. MBS, the fist bump heard all around the world is a perfect sure example of that. And the thing, so when I saw that, that was what I was thinking to myself. I was like, this is a guy who's sitting there thinking, I'm in a corner. This is, I got to give on this one, just as I've given on Saudi Arabia, just as I've given on drilling, just right as, as I've tried to pivot to this. And that, that team of folks, the Dems who are against this, they're just, they're going to be in the minority because a lot of the other Dems are going to understand that at the end of the day, all of these energy issues hit people's pocketbooks and that's what people vote with. Well, but it's also important to remember the D's did have a side. This was about permitting. Mm-hmm. If you look at energy permitting, if you think about it, so there's different kinds. So Joe Manchin gets his thing, but the left also got it on solar and other oh, yeah. issues. So yeah. it actually turns out to be a brilliant play for a president looking for re-election because he ends up looking at it and saying, hey, all energy should be available to the U.S. We shouldn't rely on outside sources. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it looks really good for him. And guess what, by the way, who's growing when it comes to um, other green technologies, the largest state? The growth, growth, Texas. Oh, so think about Interesting. it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not saying politically it matters, but there was lobbying done mm-hmm. from a state that you consider more of a drilling mm-hmm. state, mm-hmm. not a green energy state. Absolutely. And it beat out California in new growth. Okay, let's talk about the broader impact here. There's been a lot of discussion over the last couple of months about how defaulting would impact the global economy. Uh, We've avoided that now, but we've come, well, we've almost avoided that. It should be a done deal soon, but we've now come incredibly close to defaulting. Uh, Fitch, which is one of the big three credit reporting companies, credit rating companies, placed the AAA long-term foreign currency issuer default rating on a rating watch negative toward the end of May. But a default would have had a huge impact on the global economy. The chief economist at Moody's Analytics said that, quote, no corner of the global economy will be spared if the U.S. defaults. U.S. debt has long been viewed as an ultra-safe asset and is a foundation of the global economy. Susan, before Hagar takes us to school on this front, um, how are you thinking about the way Americans or whether Americans were considering the global impact, the potential catastrophe that would happen if we if we defaulted? Or was that not even really penetrating? It was not part of the equation. I mean, and basically what I would want to ask Hagar is, so when Biden came in and he reestablished our normal relations with our allies, and then you look at what he did with Ukraine, right, and how he got everyone on board and he's led the way— And you heard a lot of European countries and our other allies say, that's great, but how long is it going to last? And then you heard Trump say, oh, default. Do a default. Yeah, do do default. Because the only reason, he's not president anymore. But, you know, there used to be, you could rely on the U.S. to be a partner in security globally. And Donald Trump really tested that. Now, Biden's brought it back, but they may think in two years, 2025, when the debt ceiling runs out, oh, it could be something else. Now you can't rely on the U.S. to do the right thing financially. So I'm really curious about how much, like, does that add to just all the fear we should have? (laughs) Yes, is the short answer. You know, one of the things I find very interesting is 
when we look at other countries that are at risk of defaulting, smaller countries, Lebanon, Zimbabwe, it's a massive crisis. The World Bank and the IMF run in, the United States runs in. That is not something you want ever a country to do. Mm. And in, I feel like in the national security world, it's taken so seriously. And one of the things that, that I found that I struggled with during this debate about the debt ceiling was this lack of the other side saying how detrimental a default would be. And we talk, I think about it all the time for small countries. If it's the United States, it could, everything could fall apart. And I don't want to over-dramatize. I am not an alarmist, but we derive all of our power from our economy, all of our power. And yes, People might tell me, well, a lot of our power is military. The military wouldn't be there with its strength if it weren't for our money, for our economy. It all boils down to that. And can you paint us a picture before you continue? Can you paint us a little bit of a picture about how, where that power comes from exactly? How does it? Why? Yes. Why? So this is a fun conversation because it gets really into like the says, professor every, side of exactly, me. Exactly. <laughs> but everybody says that, and then they take yeah. that they take that soundbite away, and they're like, okay. I understand that we are the greatest economy in the world and that us, like our debt is really, really important to the stability of the global economy. Nobody bothers to explain why. Yes, I'll try and give the, the Cliff Notes version. Great. But basically, there are different views, of course. There are different theories of how you derive power. But, but it's the United States is a superpower. The United States gets that superpower uh, for, and it boils down for two reasons. It boils down to its economy and military strength. And a view, a realist view is that you derive your power from that because through those two things, you are able to ensure your survivability. And you are the one who can influence other countries by either by, because of your economy, because you're working with them, you have alliances and so on, or because you're able to threaten them into behaving the way you want them to behave because of what you have behind you. And what we have behind us again is our economy, our money, our currency. Which everybody wants. Military, yes. So let's get down into the currency. Yeah. The We have the strongest reserve currency in the world. Forever, countries have been trying to fight that, particularly China. And China, people say China and Russia, but Ch- Russia was never even close to that. But China has often tried to bit has often tried to replace the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. And what we mean by reserve currency is that other foreign countries, other central banks, want to hold mm-hmm. U.S. reserve assets, U.S. dollars in their bank right. account instead of their own or instead of money from other country. Exactly because, because it's, it's most- stable and. And it's, it's the confidence they have in the currency. It's the confidence they have in the ever-growing U.S. economy. It's the confidence they have that even when we hit bumps in the road, and we do, of course, that we are very easily able to manage them and, and move forward and be stronger for it. So countries around the world hold their assets in U.S. dollars. They trade in U.S. dollars and they buy U.S. debt, and which is valuable to us because we need money. And as, as we can see from our massive deficit. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's for us, this is the source of our power. Mm-hmm. And, and not only that, and I'm going to give you a specific example, and it's a small example, but it kind of paints. Because if that dried up, yeah, what would happen? Well, if you have, if you have for example— if people lose confidence in the U.S. dollar, and they stop holding dollar as a U.S. the dollar as the U.S. asset, um, multiple things will start happening. You'll have, for example, our sanctions will be powerless. We will have nothing to hold over the head of rogue regimes, criminals, drug traffickers, terrorists—you name it—to tell them, well. 
you are now cut out of the international financial system because you can't use the U.S. dollar. That's worked for us until now. They'll be like, so and what? I don't now. want it anyway. Right. Yeah. But they might say, well, so it doesn't matter because, you know, we can do um, all these other currencies that are equally as strong and yours is no longer the 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 gold standard mm-hmm. in the system. When you think about just even trade, um, the SWIFT system that, and SWIFT is something super nerdy, mm-hmm. but it came about, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine last year, uh, and Treasury Department to, said that made the decision that SWIFT would have to cut off most Russian banks. And SWIFT trade, that's a, a bank messaging system. And trade also all bank messages go through that system. It's done majority in dollars. Mm. So that is a power we hold mm. to to spread our values, to wield our power in different ways, to ensure to achieve our foreign policy and national security objectives. So it's the pipeline infrastructure through which all of the international currency settlements on a day-to-day basis have to th- flow through, mm-hmm. and we control the nozzle. Exactly. Think about one of the early sanctions that we did that it's, is almost unprecedented, it was super tough sanctions. At the beginning of the Ukraine war, we froze Russian assets here, though their reserve assets, because we had it. We had it in our Federal Reserve Bank. Of course, even with the tensions that you had between the United States and Russia for all that time, they held their assets in the US dollar because at the end of the day, that's that was that's the strongest one. That for them, that is a stable asset for them to hold. And now you have you do have signs. There have been multiple efforts to replace, to try and replace the dollar. And those threats are growing. These are not things that we need we should be blind to. Yes, in our lifetime, in my lifetime, the US dollar has always been the strongest. So when you when I think about it, often I think like, well, that's not gonna yeah. change. Yeah. But it could, it yeah. could change. We have to act, we have to behave that way to make sure that we understand that that's that strength. So for example, China and Saudi Arabia. China proposed settling its oil bill with Chinese currency. China and Brazil, with their trade, have agreed to do trade not using the U.S. dollar. If you have that, that doesn't, that's a dent right now. But if you have the, if that grows, that could pose a threat. The BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, talking about wanting to weaken the dollar because they are dissatisfied with the way the U.S. is handling its monetary policy, yeah. uh, that could grow into, into a potential national security threat. Yes, yeah. which is why I get so angry at yeah. these yeah. at folks on Capitol Hill sometimes where I feel like they don't appreciate. Mm. You know, I know I'm generalizing here, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I'm, yeah. maybe I sound a little condescending, but when I see folks like the those on the far left and those on the far right just refusing to compromise yeah. and saying, you know, that it's their way or the highway, I'm like, yeah. you literally don't get it. Yeah. It's if you— it, other countries are watching you yeah. and they're saying, look at how they behave. This is only going to get worse. And it it erodes confidence yeah. in the U.S. economy and in the U.S. currency. And that has ramifications for everything else. So I want to put it, this is, this is, I love when we do these like mini deep dives into like, why the hell does any of this spending talk matter? This is why it matters. This is why it matters. There's been, so, and I think the storm has been brewing. I think it's fair to say since like last year or so since we really imposed sanctions and a freeze on Russian central bank assets that are held in the U.S. because it was the first time, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was the first time we, the United States of America, ever did that 
to another country's reserve assets held in dollars. And we never did it before because we needed them to trust that we would always honor those obligations. That is right. That's right. It's unprecedented. We've sanctioned central banks before, yeah. but we've never frozen, their, frozen assets. their assets. Yes, this way, because we didn't sanction the Russian central bank. The other central banks we've sanctioned were like Syria, you know, Sudan, like yeah. Iran. Yeah. You know, these are not, they didn't have assets here, at least that I know of. But but yeah. but Russian one, they held a lot of assets here. And so when we do that to Russia, then the rest of the country, the rest of the world looks around and says, oh, shit, they could do that to ours if they don't like what we're going to do next. And so I wonder if that, first of all, does all of this answer the question you asked, Susan? And also, can we zoom out and now wonder aloud about whether U.S. policymakers actually understand the significance of what they're playing with here? That's so funny, Ron. I was just about to say something on that matter. Um, Well, we zoom out and why does it I, th- I mean, of course, now everyone understands it if they're listening to this tutorial, which I thought was excellent. <laughs> but um, people still won't care. Everyday America, like we have a lot of other stuff to care. But what they should care about and what is so important is that we have serious people working in government and in politics and elective office who understand this. Like the reason you vote for someone to go to Congress is in theory to do the serious work that I don't want to focus on. I, I, I'm i busy. I got things to do. I can't worry about how China's affected by this or with the international community. Like That's meant for serious minds to work on. And the fact that so many are now not serious, and that to me was one of the things, and Hagar, I'd love to hear you, your opinion on this, is the danger of what Donald Trump did in his appointments and filling government with, and, and the huge, massive exodus of people who knew what they were doing. They weren't political. And and the very political, and in some cases, downright dumb people that, that Trump put in. That's where I think the merger of what people should care about and understanding the issue comes to. And that's what our responsibility is as citizens, is to put good people in there. Now, I, I speak of that anecdotally about what Trump did to our government. I've heard enough. But what would you say is the case now when you look at, like, for example, your, the places you worked in government? Yeah, I was. Uh, so for civil servants, there was an exodus of really good people. But I'm not I'm not that worried about that part because there are a lot of people who still are there. There are a lot of people who still go in who really understand this and these issues. I mean, and that's what the Treasury Department and and its affiliated bodies are are there doing. Um, it's but I think you make a good point about the long run because there are times, for example, when you see those getting elected into office now who you would have never seen years ago, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, folks like George Santos. I don't care that I'm calling them out, by the way. <laughs> they are, these are not smart individuals. No. And they have well, no- Well, and just for the, just, just to balance it they out. They have no place to be. Before no she became there. a congresswoman, she got serious, but AOC had no background for this work either. She was, That's fair. That's she fair. Got, and she got serious. That's right. To her credit. That's right. She got serious her credit and she seems like a fast learner. I don't agree with her on a lot of things, but th- but that said, she really feels, it feels like she rolls her sleeves up and tries to dive in and tries to fight for her constituents for, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so- Also, um, she's just not in the same zip code as no. George Santos. I mean, one's a criminal yeah. and, you know, yeah, one's exactly. a right. playboy. Like, no, but <laughs> exactly. I know at the day they were totally, elected. Totally, totally, yeah, yeah, like once we're talking about criminals and <laughs> and, and conspiracy theorists, yeah. right? Like we're go- we've gone into the and realm of absurd. <laughs> 
and, and yeah, like and reckonings. We live in science fiction times now, and and these are things that I have to. And I say this over and over and over again in my own show that the politics in the United States are making it harder and harder for me to criticize what's happening abroad. Because, <laughs> oh. I, Susan just got fingers this, out. I just had this conversation. I'm so glad you said, I'm like, I used to always feel like, oh, we're, you know, look at that. That's like a yeah. joke. And now we're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I point all the time abroad and be like, look at these old leaders who will never relinquish power. Look at these. It's like the same people, the same families and, and, and their kids. Look at the corruption. And I'm like, oh my God. God, I need to take a look in the mirror. <laughs> that seems like a really serendipitous segue to our next segment, actually. Over the weekend, the New York Times published an article about Dianne Feinstein's reliance on staff members since her return to the Senate after a long absence with shingles. Uh, Annie Carney at the New York Times reported that at a Judiciary Committee hearing, Feinstein appeared to read from a piece of paper a staff member handed to her when she asked to record her vote. According to the Times, Feinstein's aides push her wheelchair, remind her how and when she should vote, and step in to explain things when she gets confused. They stay with her in the cloakroom where she waits to vote. Feinstein reportedly expressed confusion when Vice President Kamala Harris presided over the chamber last year. There are also reports that her staff members have been overheard telling her she cannot leave yet because there were still more votes to come. Earlier in May, the Times also reported that Feinstein had encephalitis brought on by shingles that's uh, uh, inflammation of the brain, essentially, caused by an infection. Her office had not disclosed the condition. Feinstein denied the story to a CNN reporter and said that she had a bad flu. And then her spokesman later released a statement correcting her and confirming that the senator had encephalitis. He also said that it had resolved in March. Uh, and the statement also said that the senator had Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which can cause facial paralysis and hearing loss. Uh, in the Times earlier reporting, somebody close to the senator described her current state as frightening. And all of this has led to increasing concern among Democrats about her refusal to, quote, relinquish a post that she is not capable of fulfilling without heavy and constant reliance on her aides, unquote. So the Washington Post reported that the delegates of the California Democratic Convention were split on whether or not Feinstein should resign. Feinstein is hardly the first senator stay, to stay in the Capitol as they age. Strom Thurmond, not that this is a group of people you want to be, you know, uh, mentioned among, but Strom Thurmond famously served until past his 100th birthday. Robert Byrd died in office uh, at 92 after 51 years in the Senate. Thad Cochran of Mississippi ran for re-election at 76 despite serious medical issues. Uh, Thad uh, wanted to lead the Appropriations Committee but ended up resigning before his uh, term ended due to his poor, poor health. And there's a reason why the Senate is called the world's most exclusive retirement home. <sighs> how are you both thinking, before I share my feelings on this, how are you both thinking about the situation with Diane Feinstein, Susan? Well, there's a few things yeah. there. One, the obvious um, misogyny involved with going after a woman. Yeah. Um, because they tolerate it from so many men. Mm. That's not to say that she is having serious health concerns that should be viewed at and looked through the prism of can she serve her constituents? Yeah. And that is problematic. Um. You mentioned the delegates, the California delegates, and I kind of smile to myself because they don't matter. Here's the thing, and this is what's getting the whole—and and this this is all coming down to politics. No one cares—I mean, I hate to say it. Her family and friends care about her health. Her daughter. It but, seems like yeah. her daughter is her main I mean, caregiver. But right P, and, and there's two things. One, her legacy, 
which while I disagree with much of it, is tremendous. Um, But the other is the politics of it. In California, similar to New York, the governor appoints the vacancy. Mm -hmm. The vacancy basically is gives incumbency power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in New York years ago, when Hillary Clinton went to become Secretary of State, uh, then Governor Patterson was like, who do I put in? There was even talk about him putting himself in because he probably would like that job more than being a governor. Kristen Gillibrand ended up getting it. You may remember there was an issue. Kennedy would get it. There were a few names coming up. Now, here's the issue for Newsom. Nancy Pelosi, I don't want to say, it's it's rumored that she didn't quite make a deal, but Adam Schiff backed down from trying to become my uh, the leader of the Democratic caucus in the mm-hmm. House, mm-hmm. mostly because he was told he'll get a lot of fundraising support. Mm-hmm. Now, can Newsom appoint Adam Schiff? That would be just politically bad news yeah. for him. I mean, the chances of him probably picking— um, a person of color, more likely a woman of color for the replacement. Yeah. Is The pressure is there. And guess what? That person probably becomes elected in a year and a half time. Power of the incumbency. And so I think what they were trying to do with Feinstein was run out the clock. Just keep her there so we wouldn't have to worry about an appointment. And by they, we mean Nancy Pelosi? Um, not, not, I think Democratic powers that okay. be. Okay. I, think the gov- I think the governor is in a place he doesn't want to be. Yeah. I think Nancy Pelosi, I think Chuck Schumer. I think that there's a lot of people who just said, let's see if we could just avoid the mess. Yeah, yeah. Just avoid the whole mess. Let's see if we can just get through it. And maybe because it's, you know, the double standard for women, then it's coming under more scrutiny. Um, But that's the problem. Therein lies the problem. Yeah. And don't forget, Newsom can appoint himself. It's the appointment, not necessarily— her being there and her health, that is the main issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It looks like Barbara Lee is the person who would likely be appointed. Yes. Uh, And we've talked about this, I think, once or twice before, but the primary that is shaping up for that seat is vicious, is going to be absolutely vicious. So not only is it Barbara Lee, but Adam Schiff, as you mentioned, and also Katie Porter. Yep. Uh, this is this is already looking to be a really really nasty primary. So the 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 power dynamics that you just described make a lot of sense to me. Um, Hagar, I wonder how you're thinking about this situation, um, and like, what's the what? Wh- how do you read the risk of any senator, regardless of their age and regardless of you know their gender, really being at the mercy of their staff? Oh God. <laughs> well, you know, I I have no doubt that they're trying that they're guiding her the right way, but it's right, it's risky because the staff are not who are elected. Right. And they and and it, essentially what you have is is a marionette that the staff are pulling those strings. And it's also it's sad. It's terribly it's, sad. It's that's the first thing I think of. Like this whole thing is just terribly sad. Yes. Like, Heartbreaks for her Me and too. the whole situation. I I did the can't Pete Wilson gubernatorial race against her in 1990. Oh, wow. So I remember, like, just yeah. seeing it all come together. So the sadness is really—like, yeah. I see, like, who that woman was. Yeah. I disagree with her, but my God. I think she's been really good on intelligence stuff and on oh, disclosures yeah. and transparency. And I torture? really yes. appreciate <laughs> torture. I really appreciate her work on that stuff. 
Uh, sorry, I interrupted you. But don't you think, I am a believer, and listen, I don't want to sound like George Washington in, in the Hamilton musical here, but like, don't you, isn't there a case to be made for stepping down and preserving your legacy? Because the whole idea, every, the argument against her retiring now is that, oh, but she's had this amazing legacy and it would ruin it and let her finish it up. And I'm like, no, I don't, I think it's the opposite. Look at Nancy Pelosi. Yes. As an example. And, well, and- how much worse could she get? Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to make predictions on someone's yeah. health, st- uh, their health status, and and you know, I, I don't want to sound ageist, yeah. but I do think there's something to be said to say, you know, what I had an amazing run, mm-hmm. and for the good of the country and the good of the state and the good of my constituents, I'm going to set an example and step down. But the thing is, and I will say for. All the years I worked in Washington, I really think that the type of leader that would do that is is one in a million. Yeah. Because these positions, no matter how amazing a leader is, no matter how good they are and, and effective, it takes a megalomaniac yeah. to pursue these jobs. Somebody who believes that, that change is happening specifically because of them yeah. and that, that they have more to give and that they have yet one more project to do and one more thing to accomplish. And I saw it over and over and over again, where, where leaders both, by the way, both on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch, they have this deep belief, and I'm not going to name names, they have this deep belief that if they're not the ones leading, if they're not the ones in the seat, change won't happen. Good things won't happen. That it is revolves around them and their special powers. Mm-hmm. And- Washington attracts that. So, yeah. okay, I get it. I worked for someone just like that. In the- yeah. Uh, <laughs> I worked for <laughs> my fair all? share. <laughs> and, you know, and listen, I get that there's no, there is no therapist that's going to walk them off this ledge, but, but there does need to be a way or maybe, maybe terms <laughs> set in place <laughs> to prevent this since the egos take yeah. over. But yeah. I, I can't help but think in this case, when the history is written, um, with Diane Feinstein, that we're going to find out she was propped up to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't think she. Hmm. I don't think she's in that character. Like for example, Rudy Giuliani, when he lost his mind with Trump, there was interventions done. Stop it! You're ruining your legacy. I don't care about my legacy. Like that's just a, exactly what you expect. But with her, I have a feeling. You know, first of all, shingles is painful. Like she's going through a painful time. Right? I know she no longer has it, but. Being in the wheelchair, your dignity, I actually don't think— You think she's been asked to do I this? I think she's been more propped to, to stay there until they figure it out, at least. Mm. Or even forced. Or Right, yeah. forced. Like, it was one thing—and let's not forget, this is also the interesting thing. The reason she's back is because they needed her vote. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, yeah. So if well, it's her were, job. No, it's her—yes, yeah. it's—okay, that's the reason to be back. Sure. I'm saying the reason she had to, like, there was so much pressure to put her even in the shape she's in on the Senate floor was for the vote, especially the Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. That's what they were really, really focused on. Yeah. If not for that, I don't think we're having this conversation. I think that's probably yeah. right. There's one other thread that I just want to put on the table here, which is I think something Axelrod said recently, which is every time there's a photo of Diane Feinstein in the papers— bad for Joe Biden. Oh, yes. Hmm. Excellent. I didn't think of that. That's awesome. Point. Just reminds say, That's not awesome. Yeah. I meant it, it was a very good point. It's a very good point. It just reminds everybody from just an, an, a pure superficial optics. And I know like it's, it's kind of gross to talk about the sordid politics of this, but that is real. It is, it gets to one of the core concerns that 
everybody has, including Democrats, have about Joe Biden running again. It's why there's been so much reluctance to like really uh, get on board the Biden train again. But people just are not excited about it, right? Um, and every time there's a picture, it's sort of like a premonition of what we know is coming for him, right? Not here now, not today. However, it's just a constant reminder. And that's five not years, it could happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's leave that there. We are up to speed now on some of the biggest stories this week. Uh, so let's turn to what we are watching under the radar, over the radar, wherever it happens to fly <laughs> over, on the radar, Susan. In the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> what we do know is that Susan has this uncanny knack of bringing to the table on our on our, on our look ahead segments things that end up coming true months down the road. I think we need to make like a special, <laughs> a special feature out of them. So what did you bring to show and tell today, Susan? Well, what I brought today is the story of Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas. Just to bring everyone up to speed really quickly. He was indicted in 2015, yet to stand trial. Delay, delay, delay. In 2020, of like I think it was November, there was a federal FBI investigation opened onto him due to whistleblower complaints. He was reelected in 2022 with all of that information being out there and being known. Then, all of a sudden, there was a settlement with the whistleblowers for $3.3 million of state money. Mm. Now, not claiming it's illegal, just saying, like, it's not a great look, but all all of a sudden they wanted to know, what's $3.3 million going to these three people for? And the Assembly, which is Republican-led, both houses are Republican-led in Texas, started investigating it. And without revealing their findings— It was obviously bad enough that they impeached him, which they did last Saturday. So what is there is not good because they had all the data beforehand. So Mm -hmm. it's only the receipts that could have forced the hand. And and Paxton is known as being a a very vindictive fellow. Also an enemy of democracy, shall we say. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He did. 100%. That's important to remind everyone. He was the attorney general leading the charge to the Supreme Court to overturn the elections. Yeah. He was a suing machine. I mean, that's all he did. But he did that. One of the reasons people say he did that, just as a side note, is because he had these federal federal, uh, investigations going on. He was hoping Trump would pardon him. (laughs) So that's kind of the reason there, just because this can't get any more convoluted. But yay, wait, there's more. So now that he's been um, impeached, it goes to the—he is now removed from office. They've just— uh, Abbott just appointed someone to hold the spot. It goes to the Senate for a hearing, and they vote, similar to what we see in uh, the federal level. So his wife is a, U- a state senator who has yet to <laughs> recuse herself. Of course. <laughs> um, he has some interesting people on his side, like Ted Cruz. And I mention that because he is a player, and he's also up for re-election. Um, he is, he's been standing behind Ken, but my my look ahead after all of that is that the receipts that the assembly saw, I think are going to be so bad. My guess is some of it's the Fed, the feds provided, is that there's no way that the Senate is not going to have to impeach or that Ken Pexton wants this stuff to come out. So my look ahead is a summer resignation from Ken Pexton. Ooh, and a special. And a special election would have to follow. Yeah. 
fascinating. I wonder if you, you think his wife ends up recusing? I don't think it, I think you know, do you think she, she's friends with Ginny Thomas? <laughs> <laughs> she may. And her husband's her best friend. No, um, she she may. I don't think it comes to that because I don't think they— The trial is set up for maybe, I think it's August 28th, which is why I say the resignation comes before that. So I don't see it, I don't see it becoming an issue. I have a really quick thing to mention. Actually, two quick things to mention, and then Hagar's going to land the plane for us. Um, First is, uh, we'll make this really quick, but everybody knows I'm I'm sort of laser focused on the lightning fast speed with which AI is developing and, and just changing everything, every facet of our lives. And uh, Kevin Roos, great reporter at the Times, um, is uh, just, just had a piece out about this new uh, open letter that a bunch of industry leaders have signed. And it's a single statement letter that a whole bunch of people signed, including... Uh, Sam Altman, who we've discussed, he's the chief executive of OpenAI, which makes ChatGPT. Uh, Demis Hassabis, who's the chief executive of Google's DeepMind. Dario Amade, chief executive of Anthropic, uh, among others. And it's a single sentence. Here's the quote. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. That's the one sentence statement. Um, so I keep harping on this. We're, we've got lots more AI-oriented content planned, but I just want to continue to beat the drum that this is going to be a really fucking big deal. That's that. Uh, Hagar, what do you got? By the way, I totally agree with you on the AI thing. Yeah. I'm really happy they did that letter, um, but I, I listened to an interview with the God, quote, godfather of AI, oh, yeah. where he painted a picture of what could happen if AI were to be more used by the military, <sighs> and it was terrifying. It was like robots at war because yeah. it would be so easy to launch war, yeah. um, people playing with commodities and securities in the stock market to make money that is just like, it's and the AI is doing it, and, and or AI is tanking things in order to make money. I mean, just awful, yeah. awful things if it's not regulated. And as we used to say in government, hope is not a policy, mm. but I'm going to, I'm going to overturn that. And I really hope <laughs> that, <laughs> that they figure this one out. Um, so the space I'm watching is China uh-huh. and there've been a lot of things that happened in just the last few days. And I think in the run up to an election it here, it could we could find ourselves in a space that's that's pretty dangerous. So basically, you've had in the last few days, you had a Chinese fighter jet fly right near the nose of a U.S. reconnaissance plane doing uh, legal, completely legal, uh, according to international law, reconnaissance in the South China Sea. And uh, so this Chinese fighter jet flew right in front of it in a really dangerous way. The U.S. has been seeing more and more of these types of, this type of behavior, these types of interception. Uh, a few months ago, in fact, a, a Chinese fighter jet flew 10 feet away from a U.S. Uh, plane in the same area. So they're trying to send this message. You also have President Xi told his um, his officials in a, a publicly to prepare for all national security scenarios and to prepare for, quote, stormy seas. And then just this week, you also had, or maybe it was weekend, you had Chinese officials travel to Europe, around Europe, to try and make this very explicit effort to to divide the United States from Europe or Europe from the United States. And they argued to European officials that being allied with the United States was not in their favor, especially in the during the Ukraine war, that we had no interest in peace, but that the Chinese do. And the Europeans told them to, to go pound sand. They didn't even entertain the these overtures. But the fact is, 
when I see all of this and I see in the United States, you have rhetoric that is becoming increasingly hawkish. And I'm going to say hawk-ish. Hawk in, in, the definition of a hawk is somebody who wants to pursue military engagement to solve a national security problem. Mm. So hawk-ish. But, but the rhetoric from Republicans is hawkish. The, the rhetoric from most Democrats is to out-hawk the Republicans. Mm. And that's only going to increase as we mm-hmm. run up to an election. And I worry about it because— it could put us in a very dangerous place with China. That rhetoric could land us in a place that we actually don't really want to be. Mm. And I'm not trying to say China's not a threat. China's a huge, huge threat. (laughs) But there are smart, thoughtful ways to address this and to not land us in this position. Another one more example of that is that the U.S. government, and I think this is smart, wants to establish a hotline with the Chinese military so that we can avoid these scenarios, and they refuse to do it. The U.S. Secretary of Defense asked for a meeting with his Chinese counterpart in Singapore, this conference that they're all at, and the Chinese refused. Now, to be fair, we sanctioned the defense minister, so I feel like that's kind of awkward. If it were me, I'd probably say no to. But that said, again, only highlighting the, the situation we're in that I think is going, because of our own domestic politics here will increase tensions further and it could be extremely dangerous, especially when you add AI oh to that. Oh my God, when you add AI to that. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, this is like really, really That scares really me. Just I know. Yeah. I've been a little alarmist today. <laughs> yeah. End of the world. <laughs> no, but I mean, for somebody like you to say this is more than just bluster, yeah. but actually the, the this does look like stormy seas or whatever he said. Uh, it's not good. It's not yeah. comforting. Uh, and on this point, I've got a discussion coming up uh, with someone you recommended to us, Evan Medeiros. Yes. Uh, who He's going awesome. to, we're going to go real deep on China, Good. US-China uh, relations, just because we've done so much like Russia-Ukraine stuff. This is clearly uh, a much bigger threat than Russia has been. And um, I wonder, I, I am, the, the big question mark for me is what do the really thoughtful, serious people think might be a navigable path out of this conflict, given that there are unreconcilable worldviews between the U.S. and China, and uh, I don't know what I don't I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, you're on a collision course. Evan is your man for yeah, that one. Yeah. He's and he has a calming like you he's listen very, to him, yeah. and yeah, he will put you at ease. Yeah, he's very calm. even when he's sharing scary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we are going to talk about whew, the politics of delusion and the proposition of an anti-democracy spiral. Uh, that we're on. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Susan? I'm on Twitter, Del Percy OS. And Hagar? I'm across social media platforms at, at Hagar Shimali and at Oh My World Show. And the show itself lives on YouTube, Oh My World Show, where we cover top world news stories in a fun, easy, and satirical way. Oh My World! Exclamation point. Is, yeah. that, where, is that where the wigs are? That's, That's where, where the wigs are. Yeah, outside. I have a wall of wigs. Oh, you want to see Hagar in wigs? You got to go. You got to go. Yeah. You it's a lot of fun. It's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.